Chapter 43 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Dread, Chapter 43, The Slave's Argument. On his return home, Clayton took from the post office a letter which we will give to our readers. Mr. Clayton, I am now an outcast. I cannot show my face in the world. I cannot go abroad by daylight. For no crime, as I can see, except resisting oppression. Mr. Clayton, if it were proper for your fathers to fight and shed blood for the oppression, that came upon them, why isn't it right for us? They had not half the provocation that we have. Their wives and families were never touched. They were not bought and sold and traded like cattle in the market as we are. In fact, when I was reading that history, I could hardly understand what provocation they did have. They had everything easy and comfortable about them. They were able to support their families, even in luxury and yet they were willing to plunge into war and shed blood. I have studied the Declaration of Independence. The things mentioned there were bad and uncomfortable, to be sure. But after all, look at the laws which are put over us. Now, if they had forbidden them to teach their children to read, if they had divided them all out among masters and declared them as incapable of holding property as the mule before the plough, there would have been some sense in that revolution. Well, how was it with our people in South Carolina? Denmark Vesey was a man. His history is just what George Washington's would have been if you had failed. And what sent him on his course? the Bible, and your Declaration of Independence. What does your Declaration say? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to any of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. Now what do you make of that? This is read to us every 4th of July. It was read to Denmark Vesey and Peter Poyas and all those other brave good men who dared to follow your example and your precepts. Well, they failed and your people hung them. And they said they couldn't conceive what motive could have induced them to make the effort. They had food enough and clothes enough, and were kept very comfortable. Well, had not your people clothes enough and food enough? And wouldn't you still have had enough, even if you had remained a province of England to this day? Much better living, much better clothes and much better laws than we have today? I heard your father's interpretation of the law. I heard Mr. Jekyll's, and yet when men rise up against such laws, 
you wonder what in the world could have induced them. That's perfectly astonishing. But of all the injuries and insults that are heaped upon us, there is nothing to me so perfectly maddening as the assumption of your religious men who maintain and defend this enormous injustice by the Bible. We have all the right to rise against them that they had to rise up against England. They tell us the Bible says, Servants, obey your masters. Well, the Bible says also, The powers that are ordained of God, and whoso resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. If it was right for them to resist the ordinance of God, it is right for us. If the Bible does justify slavery, why don't they teach the slave to read it? And what's the reason that two of the greatest insurrections came from men who read scarcely anything else but the Bible? No, the fact is, they don't believe this themselves. If they did, they would try the experiment fairly of giving the Bible to their slaves. I can assure you the Bible looks as different to a slave from what it does to a master as everything else in the world does. Now, Mr. Clayton, you understand that when I say you, along here, I do not mean you personally, but the generality of the community of which you are one. I want you to think these things over, and whatever my future course may be, remember my excuse for it is the same as that on which your government is built. I am very grateful to you for all your kindness. Perhaps the time may come when I shall be able to show my gratitude. Meanwhile, I must ask one favor of you, which I think you will grant for the sake of that angel who is gone. I have a sister, who, as well as myself, is the child of Tom Gordon's father. She was beautiful and good, and her owner, who had a large estate in Mississippi, took her to Ohio, emancipated and married her. She has two children by him, a son and a daughter. He died and left his estate to her and her children. Tom Gordon is the heir at law. He has sued for the property and obtained it. The act of emancipation has been declared null and void, and my sister and her children are in the hands of that man with all that absolute power, and they have no appeal from him or for any evil whatsoever. She has escaped his hands, so she wrote me once, but I have heard a report that he has taken her again. The pious Mr. Jekyll will know all about it. Now, may I ask you to go to him and make inquiries and let me know? A letter sent to Mr. James Twitchell at the post office near Canama, where our letters used to be taken, will get to me. By doing this favor, you will secure my eternal gratitude. Harry Gordon End of Harry's Letter Clayton read this letter with some surprise and a good deal of attention. It was written on very coarse paper, such as is commonly sold at the low shops. Where Harry was, and how concealed, was to him only matter of conjecture. But the call to render him any assistance was a sacred one, and he determined on a horseback excursion to E, the town where Mr. Jekyll resided. He found that gentleman, 
very busy in looking over and arranging papers in relation to that large property which had just come into Tom Gordon's hands. He began by stating that the former owner of the servants at Canama had requested him, on her deathbed, to take an interest in her servants. He had therefore called to ascertain if anything had been heard from Harry. "'Not yet,' said Mr. Jekyll, pulling up his shirt-collar. "'Our plantations in this vicinity are very unfortunate in their proximity to the swamp. It's a great expense of time and money. Why, sir, it's inconceivable the amount of property that's lost in that swamp. I have heard it estimated at something like three millions of dollars. We follow them up with the laws, you see. They are outlawed regularly after a certain time.' and then the hunters go in and chase them down. Sometimes kill two or three a day, or something like that, but on the whole they don't effect much. Well, said Clayton, who felt no disposition to enter into any discussion with Mr. Jekyll, so you think he is there? Oh, yes, I have no doubt of it. The fact is, there's a fellow that's been lurking about this swamp off and on for years and years. Sometimes he isn't to be seen for months, and then again he is seen or heard of, but never so that anybody can get hold of him. I have no doubt the niggers on the plantation know him, but then you can never get anything out of them. Oh, they are deep. They are a dreadfully corrupt set. Mr. Gordon has, I think, a sister of Harry's who came in with this new estate, said Mr. Clayton. Yes, yes said Mr. Jekyll. She has given us a good deal of trouble, too. She got away and went off to Cincinnati, and I had to go up and hunt her out. It was really a great deal of trouble and expense. If I hadn't been assisted by the politeness and kindness of the marshal and brother officers, it would have been very bad. There was a good deal of religious society, too, in Cincinnati. And so, while I was waiting, I attended anniversary meetings. "'Then you did succeed,' said Clayton. "'I came to see whether Mr. Gordon would listen to a proposition for selling her.' "'Oh, he has sold her,' said Mr. Jekyll. "'She is at Alexandria now, in Beaton and Burns' establishment.' "'And her children, too?' "'Yes, the lot.' "'I claim some little merit for that myself.' Tom is a fellow of rather strong passions, and he was terribly angry for the trouble she had made. I don't know what he would have done to her if I hadn't talked to him. But I showed him some debts that couldn't be put off any longer without too much of a sacrifice, and on the whole I persuaded him to let her be sold. I have tried to exert a good influence over him in a quiet way, said Mr. Jekyll. Now if you want to get the woman— like enough, she may not be sold as yet. Clayton, having thus ascertained the points which he wished to know, proceeded immediately to Alexandria. When he was there, he found a considerable excitement. A slave woman, it was said, who was to have been sent off in a coffle the next day, had murdered her two children. The moment that Clayton heard the news, he felt an instinctive certainty that this woman was Cora Gordon. He went to the magistrate's court, where the investigation was being held, and found it surrounded by a crowd so dense that it was with difficulty he forced his way in. 
At the bar he saw seated a woman dressed in black, whose face, haggard and wan, showed yet traces of former beauty. The splendid dark eyes had a peculiar and fierce expression. The thin lines of the face were settled into an immovable fixedness of calm determination. There was even an air of grave, solemn triumph in her countenance. She appeared to regard the formalities of the court with the utmost indifference. At last she spoke in a clear, thrilling, distinct voice. If the gentleman will allow me to speak, I'll save them the trouble of that examination of witnesses. It's going to be a long way round to find a very little thing. There was an immediate movement of curiosity in the whole throng, and the officer said, You are permitted to speak. She rose deliberately, untied her bonnet strings, looked round the whole court with a peculiar but calm expression of mingled triumph and power. You want to know, she said, who killed those children? Well, I will tell you. And again her eyes traveled round the house with that same strong, defiant expression. I killed them. There was a pause and a general movement through the house. Yes, she said again, I killed them. And oh, how glad I am that I have done it. Do you want to know what I killed them for? Because I love them, love them so well, that I was willing to give up my soul to save theirs. I have heard some persons say that I was in a frenzy, excited, and didn't know what I was doing. They are mistaken. I was not in a frenzy, I was not excited, and I did know what I was doing, and I bless God that it is done. I was born the slave of my own father. Your old proud Virginia blood is in my veins, as it is in half of those you whip and sell. I was the lawful wife of a man of honor who did what he could to evade your cruel laws and set me free. My children were born to liberty. They were brought up to liberty, till my father's son entered a suit for us and made us slaves. Judge and jury helped him. All your laws and your officers helped him to take away the rights of the widow and the fatherless. The judge said that my son, being a slave, could no more hold property than the mule before his plow, and we were delivered into Tom Gordon's hands. I shall not say what he is. It is not fit to be said. God will show us at the judgment day, but I escaped with my children to Cincinnati. He followed me there, and the laws of your country gave me back to him. Tomorrow I was to have gone in a coffle and leave these children, my son, a slave for life, my daughter. She looked round the courtroom with an expression which said more than words could have spoken. So I heard them say their prayers and sing their hymns, and then, while they were asleep and didn't know it, I sent them to lie down in green pastures with the Lord. They say this is a dreadful sin. It may be so. I am willing to lose my soul to have theirs saved. I have no more to hope or fear. It's all nothing now where I go or what becomes of me. 
but at any rate they are safe. And now, if any of you mothers in my place wouldn't have done the same thing, you either don't know what slavery is, or you don't love your children as I have loved mine. This is all. She sat down, folded her arms, fixed her eyes on the floor, and seemed like a person entirely indifferent to the further opinions and proceedings of the court. She was remanded to jail for trial. Clayton determined in his own mind to do what he could for her. Her own declaration seemed to make the form of a trial unnecessary. He resolved, however, to do what he could to enlist for her the sympathy of some friends of his in the city. The next day he called with a clergyman and requested permission to see her. When they entered her cell, she rose to receive them with the most perfect composure, as if they had called on her in a drawing-room. Clayton introduced his companion as the Reverend Mr. Denton. There was an excited flash in her eyes, but she said calmly, "'Have the gentleman business with me?' "'We called,' said the clergyman, "'to see if we could render you any assistance.' "'No, sir, you cannot,' was the prompt reply. "'My dear friend,' said the clergyman, in a very kind tone, "'I wish it were in my power to administer to you "'the consolations of the gospel.' "'I have nothing to do,' she answered firmly, "'with ministers who pretend to teach the gospel "'and support oppression and robbery. "'Your hands are defiled with blood, so don't come to me. "'I am a prisoner here and cannot resist.' but when I tell you that I prefer to be left alone, perhaps it may have some effect, even if I am a slave. Clayton took out Harry's letter, handed it to her, and said, After you have read this, you will perhaps receive me if I should call again tomorrow at this hour. The next day, when Clayton called, he was conducted by the jailer to the door of the cell. There is a lady with her now, reading to her. Then I ought not to interrupt her, said Clayton, hesitating. Oh, I suspect it would make no odds, said the jailer. Clayton laid his hand on to stop him. The sound that came distinctly through the door was the voice of prayer. Some woman was interceding in the presence of eternal pity for an oppressed and broken-hearted sister. After a few moments the door was partly opened, and he heard a sweet voice saying, let me come to you every day, may I? I know what it is to suffer. A smothered sob was the only answer, and then followed words imperfectly distinguished, which seemed to be those of consolation. In a moment the door was opened, and Clayton found himself suddenly face to face with a lady in deep mourning. She was tall and largely proportioned, the outlines of her face strong yet beautiful, and now wearing the expression which comes from communion with the highest and serenest nature. Both were embarrassed and made a momentary pause. In the start she dropped one of her gloves. Clayton picked it up, handed it to her, bowed, and she passed on. By some singular association this stranger, with a serious radiant face, suggests to him the sparkling, glittering beauty of Nina, and it seemed for a moment 
as if Nina was fluttering by him in the air and passing away after her. When he examined the emotion more minutely afterwards, he thought perhaps it might have been suggested by the perception as he lifted the glove of a peculiar and delicate perfume which Nina was fond of using. So strange and shadowy are the influences which touch the dark electric chain of our existence. When Clayton went into the cell, he found its inmate in a softened mood. There were traces of tears on her cheek and an open Bible on the bed, but her appearance was calm and self-possessed as usual. She said, "'Excuse my rudeness, Mr. Clayton, at your last visit. We cannot always command ourselves to do exactly what we should. I thank you very much for your kindness to us. There are many who are kindly disposed toward us, but it's very little that they can do. Can I be of any assistance in securing counsel for you? said Clayton. I don't need any counsel. I don't wish any, said she. I shall make no effort. Let the law take its course. If you ever should see Harry, give my love to him. That's all. And if you can help him, pray do. If you have time, influence, or money to spare, and can get him to any country where he will have the common rights of a human being, pray do, and the blessings of the poor will come on you. That's all I have to ask. Clayton rose to depart. He had fulfilled the object of his mission. He had gained all the information, and more than all, that he had wished. He queried with himself whether it were best to write to Harry at all. The facts that he had to relate were such as were calculated to kindle to a fiercer flame the excitement which was now consuming him. He trembled when he thought of it, lest that excitement should blaze out in forms which should array against him with still more force that society with which he was already at war. Thinking, however, that Harry perhaps, might obtain the information in some less guarded form, he sat down and wrote him the following letter. I have received your letter. I need not say that I am sorry for all that has taken place, sorry for your sake, and for the sake of one very dear both to me and to you. Harry, I freely admit that you live in a state of society which exercises great injustice. I admit your right, and that of all men, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I admit the right of an oppressed people to change their form of government, if they can. I admit that your people suffer under greater oppression than ever our forefathers suffered. And if I believed that they were capable of obtaining and supporting a government, I should believe in their right to take the same means to gain it but I do not at present. And I think, if you reflect on the subject, you will agree with me. I do not think that, should they make an effort, they would succeed. They would only embitter the white race against them and destroy that sympathy which many are beginning to feel for their oppressed condition. I know it seems a very unfeeling thing for a man who is at ease to tell someone who is oppressed and suffering to be patient, and yet I must even say it. 
it is my place and your place to seek repeal of the unjust laws which oppress you i see no reason why the relation of master and servants may not be continued through our states and the servants yet be free men i am satisfied that it would be for the best interest of master as well as slave if this is the truth time will make it apparent and the change will come with regard to you the best counsel i can give is that you try to escape to some of the northern states and i will furnish you with the means to begin life there under better auspices i am very sorry that i have to tell you something very painful about your sister she was sold to a trading house in alexandria and in desperation she has killed both her children for this she is now in prison awaiting her trial i have been to see her and offered every assistance in my power she declines all she does not wish to live and has already avowed the fact making no defense and wishing none to be made for her another of the bitter fruits of this most unrighteous system she desired her love and kind wishes to you whatever more is to be known i will tell you at some future time after all that i have said to you in this letter i cannot help feeling for myself how hard and cold and insufficient it must seem to you if i had such a sister as yours and her life hadn't been so wrecked i feel that i might not have patience to consider any of these things and i am afraid you will not yet i feel this injustice to my heart i feel it like a personal affliction and god helping me i will make it the object of my life to remedy it your sister's trial will not take place for some time and she has friends who do all that can be done for her end of clayton's letter clayton returned to his father's house and related the result of his first experiment with the clergy well now said mrs clayton i must confess i was not prepared for this i was said judge clayton it's precisely what i expected you have tried the presbyterians with whom our family are connected and now you may go successively to the episcopalians the methodists the baptists and you will hear the same story from them all about half of them defend the thing from the bible in the most unblushing disgusting manner the other half acknowledge and lament it as an evil but they are cowed and timid and can do nothing well said clayton the greatest evidence to my mind of the inspiration of the scriptures is that they are yet afloat when every new absurdity has been successively tacked to them but said mrs clayton are there no people that are faithful none in this matter that i know of said judge clayton except the covenanters and the quakers among us and the free will baptists and a few others at the north and their number and influence is so small that there can be no great calculation made on them for assistance of individuals there are not a few who earnestly desire to do something but they are mostly without faith or hope like me and from the communities from the great organizations in society no help whatsoever is to be expected
End of chapter 43 The Slave's Argument